very good morning to you all. It's great to see you all here. Let's just uh, open in prayer. Uh, Father God, we give you thanks that we're able to meet here to hear your word this morning. And we ask that in your mercy you would give us open hearts and minds and that you will enable us to learn um, about you more. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we live in a world that is full of noise, filled with more voices now more than at any time in history. And they all call out for different reasons, vying for our attention. And the shouting, it eats into our lives, doesn't it, via all sorts of social media. Uh, You never seem to be away from work with your mobile or email. Don't get me started on those influencers. (laughs) Amid all the noise and the clamour, how do we decide what to listen to? Because it's so easy to be distracted, isn't it? Especially when we're in hard times. And what is it that we might want to listen to or say as Christian believers? Do we perhaps feel that amongst the noise uh, that no one is going to hear us? The world will fill our hearts and minds if we let it, with tons generally of rubbish. But it only has empty promises that will never last. So what are we to do? Well, in the book of Isaiah, we can see that he had prophesied that Israel would fail because its people had turned away from God. And as a result, the country would be overrun and many were taken into exile to Babylon. And that's exactly what happened. We've learned recently, haven't we, that Babylon is just a picture of the world today. Well, these last chapters deal with the return of the exiles promised in Isaiah. But after their historical return, Israel continued to fail. They were back in Jerusalem, but they were not with God. And that's why this message is relevant today. Isaiah's prophecies still picture God's future intentions. We are in the world, which is just like Babylon. Christians are in exile and look forward to returning home to God. Uh, This passage is one of the so-called servant songs that describe the Messiah, the Saviour, Now, we know this is Jesus. There's no prizes for guessing that. Um, Here we see that God's servant is the one who is going to make the difference. And we need to consider what this passage means to us today. How relevant can it be? I mean, the Messiah's already come, hasn't he? Well, in verse 1, it says, Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. So in these first three verses of Isaiah, we have a picture of the servant Jesus written hundreds of years before he was born. And the servant is revealed in this passage. And God, in giving this revelation, is asking his people to look forward to a time when his servant would come. Now, putting our hindsight to one side, what do we learn about the servant? Well, the servant begins with two commands. Listen to me and give attention. Now, this is different from the way prophets usually talk. You know, usually they begin with a variation of, thus says the Lord, or or the Lord says, or something along those lines. And also, he doesn't say who he is, which was usually done by saying who he is the son of. For example, in Isaiah 1, verse 1, um, he says, Isaiah the son of Amos. So the servant is different from just being a prophet. Listen to me, he says. He's given commands that show he has authority that is personal to him. And then he tells us why he has that authority. 
in verse 1, he was called for this purpose. And in verse 3, we see that he is to be God's servant. Now, that's not just someone who performs a duty for a rich person. The servant here means a follower who is devoted to what he does, whose life is defined by his servanthood. It's not an academic work for hire commitment. It's a life commitment to which he was called before he was born. And still, notice here that the servant's not given a name. Although in verse 1, it clearly states that his name is important. That funny little phrase, he named my name. Um, In the original language, the meaning here is that it is a name to be remembered. Someone special. And though his name is not stated, but concealed, which again, we'll see in the next verse. His authority begins with Israel and the lands that are close by. That's what it means by the coastlands. But then it goes further afield to places that are far away, unknown. God has sent his servant with the authority to say, listen to me. He calls him from before he was born, and the servant acts not on his own authority, but in the authority of the one who called him. And the servant is not left to his own devices. You know, God doesn't say, yeah, here you go, get on with it. He equips his servant as well. Now, so in verse 2 it says, He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver he hid me away. I'm, I'm sure we've all seen movies where the heroes get ready to do battle, you know, and they strap on all sorts of weapons and armor, you know, and then you get that like, the slow motion walk as they walk out towards their destiny. Uh, and, it, and it's this point that we really see the heroes revealed. Well, actually, we've got that sort of picture here in verse 2. It, it really is like that. He's given two weapons one's a sword, and a weapon which is used for close combat, isn't it? And it's a powerful weapon. And the image of a sharp sword and the mouth is, is used a number of times throughout the Bible. For example, in Hebrews 4.12, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The sword represents the word of God. It cuts and pierces to the heart of a person, and it discerns the thoughts and intentions of every single one of us as we will see. What about the arrow? Well, it's been honed to perfection, polished, perhaps we could say purified. But like the sword, it still will go straight to the heart, revealing our innermost being, our true motivations. The servant, seen as an arrow, is taken care of, is placed in a quiver until he is needed. The servant is ready for the call to action. But like his name, he is not revealed. Not until God says he is to be. And I want you to think of personal up-close battles with the sword. But the arrow has a long reach, doesn't it? Um, It shows us the reach of God's word. And it's awesome. He's able to reach anyone, anywhere. Though uh, Though the servant has authority, it clearly comes from God. The sword is shadowed, hidden. The arrow is concealed, ready and waiting. It's been carefully prepared for a specific time and purpose. And we see the authority of God in that, concealing the servant's name, which God will only reveal when the time is right. We know with hindsight who the servant is and when he spoke, of course. We know Jesus from God's word revealed. And we've seen the power of his word to change hearts and minds. 
And don't forget that we too are waiting for Jesus to return at the time that only God knows. Jesus came to fulfill the purposes of God. God chose him and prepared him, and at the perfect time, God sent him. In verse 3, And he said to me, You are my servant Israel, in whom I will be glorified. God calls his servant Israel, but it's not his name, so why call him that? Well, we have to think of the purpose of Israel. Israel, or God's people, were to be set apart, which means holy. God chose this people to give glory to himself. And Israel was, of course, a name given by God to Jacob, whose 12 sons and tribes formed together to form the nation of Israel. But over and over, the historical nation of Israel failed. Time and time again, they turned from God and went their own way. They could not bring glory to God. By ourselves, neither can we. Um, Isaiah 48, verse 1. Hear this, O house of Jacob, who are called by the name of Israel, and who come from the waters of Judah, who swear by the name of the Lord and confess the God of Israel, but not in truth and, and right or right. They said they followed him. They would swear by his name. They would confess or speak about him, but not in truth or right. They failed. And it can be easy to think that somehow Israel is worse than us in their failure, but that's not true. We fail in just the same ways. We turn aside from God, we do things in our own way, and we trust the world's promises. But here he calls his servant Israel, not because it was his name, but because he was able to do what Israel would never be able to do, and that is bring glory to God. He would never turn away from God or go his own way. He would serve God faithfully. And notice that only Jesus has done this from creation up until today. There is no one else who can do this. If you like, it's like a football match, isn't it? You know, they bring the, the substitute on at the end. Well, Jesus is the greatest substitute that there has ever or could ever be. He is the only one who can win that match, who can bring glory to God. Well, maybe we just need to consider the question that was asked, or should be asked, do I actually listen to Jesus as he said? Do I pay attention? Do I really honour him for who he is and what he has done? And that's important because we're commanded to pay attention, to listen to Jesus. And we can only do that when we come to the Bible, God's word. God chooses his people before the creation of the world. And we're here today because we have heard God's word, his gospel message of salvation. Now, there may be some here today who, who have yet to make a commitment. Well, if that's you, then give attention to the servant and the message he brings. Seriously consider the authority of Jesus and the message he has brought to the world. Well, what about if you're a believer? Well, maybe you found it hard to carve time out of your day to spend with him. Perhaps you haven't yet got around to try reading the Bible daily. But we are called to attend to Jesus, to know who he is, Jesus, who, if we follow him, has already died on the cross to bring salvation to us. Perhaps uh, this is your first time here in church or online, and you want to know more. Well, that's brilliant. Speak to someone here about how to do that. But whatever your position, we all need to check, are we following Jesus? As he commanded to listen to him, to know him better. Well, in this passage, we can do it by looking at the servant. We need to give attention to what the servant is saying. I mean, who is more worthy of our attention than him? 
So the first three verses are great and triumphal. And then we hit verse 4. Bang. All comes to a screeching halt. As he says, But I, I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. It's not all plain sailing. There is struggle that seems at odds with the first three verses. The verses are triumphant in who the servant is and in what he can do. He will bring glory to God in how he serves God. He's been prepared and equipped by God for this service, not just with weapons, but with God-given authority. But here we have a warning. It talks of the difficulties of the task. It tells us that not everybody will be saved. There will be hearts revealed by God's word who will reject the message. They will not turn to God. The servant puts in his all, doesn't he? He gives everything he has, but it seems to be for nothing. Everything is vain. And in the original language, that word means chaos and confusion. Or it's for vanity, which actually means vapor. There is nothing substantial. If these reject salvation, you could reach the point where you say, well, why bother to speak at all? And there are times when Jesus sort of echoes this. In Luke 9, 41, Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? And Mark 8, 21, he said to them, do you not yet understand? That hint of frustration, perhaps. Well, any teacher or parent um, can tell you that to talk to people time and time again and achieve nothing is exhausting and disheartening. There are some people who the minute you start talking will reject it before you've reached the end of the first sentence. There are some people that you spend years talking to and they reject. Um, But there is one crucial word in verse 4 that Jesus says that makes all the difference. There's one important word that says there's hope coming and it's the word yet. There's going to be a contrast here from this despair, this despondency. The second half of verse 4 immediately gives us the solution to what we are to do if we are perhaps feeling despondent and downcast. The solution is in the message that the servant brings, the servant who God has given the task of bringing him glory. The servant has been called and prepared for the task. He is confident in God's purpose. The word will at times be rejected, yes, but we can carry on as God's future promise for his servant is certain. The danger here is allowing ourselves to become despondent. Because despondency holds us back. We begin to prevaricate, don't we? You know, we look for excuses. You know, now's not the right time to speak to that person. They're not in a good place. Or um, I don't know enough to talk about that yet. You know, so I, I can't really start. Whatever the excuse, remember, the, the, what God's word success is not in our hands, but in God's. Yes, his word divides us into those who refuse the message and those who accept. That's God's work. But isn't it encouraging to know that God will accomplish his will? When Jesus was crucified, those around him mocked him, didn't they? They thought he'd lost. Instead, it was the greatest of victories. God says, trust in me when things are tough. Our recompense, as it says in 4b, is not gauged on what we do, but on what God gives us, which is so much more than we could ever earn or deserve. Yes, we can be discouraged and want to give up, 
Discouragement is a bit like an anchor, isn't it? It holds us in place. You can't move forward. You're held back by the fear of rejection. But as we see in verses 5 and 6, God opens up the future. He does not give up on his people. So verse 5 and 6, And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb is to be to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I, for I am honoured in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach you to the end of the earth. Perhaps just think of a time when you've, you've been faced with something that, that seems just too big for you to cope with. You know, have you ever felt that sort of feeling of paralysis that comes in there? You know, I, I just can't cope with this. It's, I, it's not in my league at all. Well, how do we cope with that? Well, this is the situation here, isn't it? Verse 4 has already given us part of the answer. It says, remember to trust in God. But in verse 5, it says, just get on with the work. It reminds us of the servant's task, doesn't it? It reminds us of who prepared him for this purpose. And his purpose was to bring Jacob back so that Israel will be gathered to God. This will happen. It was what the servant was called and equipped for. In fact, before he's even started, the servant is already honoured in the eyes of God, as we see in verse 5. God is his strength, he says. Not that God gives him strength, but that in God's presence, he has the strength of God. It's why he is certain to succeed. What an example of God's mercy. God does this even though Israel, even though we fail over and over. But we, res- we, we must remember, um, like Israel, we do not deserve God's mercy, but he gives us so much more than we could ever repay. So certain is this hope that God, in fact, up- ups the ante. He doesn't just multiply it by two or ten. I mean, it's, it's more than a hundred he ups it by. He says that just saving Israel on its own is not impossible enough. He's going to prepare his servant and add to the task. Now, we've got to remember the Israelites were always divided. And if it were possible to count up the divisions against unity, I am absolutely certain that divisions would win by a long shot. They'd all turn to their own ways, but God still saves them. But just to save them does not seem to have been enough for God or his servant. He wants to reach people at the ends of the earth. We go from something that is definitely impossible, saving a failed Israel, to completely 100% impossible. But God has prepared his servant once more. In Luke 2, verse 32, um, it says, A light of re- for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. The great point here is that God is the one who again pre- prepares Jesus. This time, he's equipped to be a light to the world. For a person to enter that light is to have darkness and gloom and confusion replaced with truth and delight. John 8, 12, again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. What a contrast to the world, the darkness of the world, that will try to hide the truth. But here is the servant equipped to deal with the darkness, to ensure that all people are reached. To be in the light is to be given a purpose, to serve God and be part of that saving work that will be completed. I mean, what could be better than that?
So what and where are the ends of the world? Sounds a bit big for me. I've made it to a couple of countries, but that wouldn't really consider the end of the world. And anyway, it's a sphere, so where is the end? Well, what does it mean for us? Um, let's take a small step. Is there a colleague or a group of colleagues we've always tried to talk about the gospel but haven't? Maybe that's the end of the world. What about a family member or maybe a friend from school or even a stranger on the bus stop? The world is full of people for us to reach. Whoever your end of the world is, maybe next time just give them an invite to the next church outreach. Through Jesus, the word is continuing to be carried across the world, and that is the greatest thing. Finally, we need to see that the servant here is not just a message of God's salvation to the ends of the earth. We know that he himself is God's salvation. Only the Messiah, the Savior, could achieve this. And it was a work that was completed on the cross to save a people. Jesus, who had never sinned, took his people's punishment that his sacrifice and their salvation would glorify God in his grace and mercy. We live in a noisy world filled with billions of voices, but we can trust in God that we will be heard because that is God's will, his purpose to save a people for himself. The grace and mercy and glory of God displayed through salvation. He has given us his word, the message of the gospel. Don't worry about the noise of the world or the babble of Babylon. There is one true message of salvation, the most important words for us to speak out for people to hear. Attend to Jesus. God's servant does not just bring salvation. Remember, Jesus is salvation. And in this noise of the world, which will try and fill our hearts and minds, well, let's try and fill it with someone worth knowing. And that's Jesus. Let's pray. Uh, Father God, We give you thanks that you are the God of salvation and that you sent your son to die on a cross so that we might be saved. Without you, Father, there is no hope and no future. And Father, we just pray uh, 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 that you would encourage us to attend to Jesus, to know him better, to ride these difficult times with our trust in him and that we will be bold in speaking of Jesus to others. Amen.